He's controversial. 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. He's outspoken. You will tell your kids and your grandkids and your great, great grandkids. And he tells it like it is. That you watched a great athlete named the franchise and he was the greatest world heavyweight champion of all time. He is the franchise Shane Douglas and you are listening to the Triple Threat Podcast. Prepare to get your ass franchised. Triple Threat Podcast being brought to you today and broadcasted here on the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcasting empire. If you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner on the two-man power trip, the one and only JP John Paz. And on this episode 81, he's back again for yet another round. He is the one and only Pittsburgh's favorite son, franchise Shane Douglas. Shane, welcome into episode number 81. Man, it, it, it's flying by, isn't it? I mean, every time we, that, that number keeps clicking up, I keep thinking to myself, it doesn't seem that long, but we have a hell of a lot of fun doing it, and uh, the feedback from the fans has been great, so let's, uh, let's nail it out. Yeah, I mean, and this is a short turnaround in terms of like how we're getting together to record, so you know, we're, we're feeling it, we're feisty, you know, we're ready to, uh, to talk about some stuff. We got a cool uh, little lineup today. Continuing the uh, the territory discussion like we talked about a few weeks ago and your journey to get to the UWF. And now we're going to talk about real uncharted territory for us and the uh, the Continental days. I was able to watch some Continental over the weekend. So like, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. So it's going to be uh, it's going to be a fun show today, but a little show maintenance, if you will. A former guest of ours, a friend of yours, had some very nice things to say about you over the weekend. And I shared them with you on Sunday night. And uh, that's our that's our good buddy Vince Russo, who took to his podcast on Friday that he does on his brand network with uh, Glenn Gilberti, as well as his co-host Jeff Lane. And basically, they were kind of having a brief discussion about, you know, Vince going down YouTube rabbit holes and, and you never know what you're going to click on yeah. next when you're when you're on YouTube. You can go from looking at, yeah. you know, a conspiracy yeah, video. Yeah, exactly. You go from watching a conspiracy video to, uh, you know, serial commercials within like three clips or clicks. So Vince was talking about how he was coming across shoot interviews and he just stopped everything he was saying. He said that out of anybody he's ever come across in the wrestling business, the only person that he feels like tells you the truth, has no agenda and is never positioning himself to get over is the franchise Shane Douglas and I think back and I and I really go back and think think of the stories you told on this show and you go back and watch a, an interview clip with you from 20 years ago the story never changes 
The, the players never change. The scenarios never change. You're always on top of everything, and you're always – really, you're giving the straight shoot on everything. And I thought that was really cool, Vince, to uh, kind of throw a little compliment your way. Well, first of all, thank you to Vince for that. Uh, you know, it really is a nice compliment, and, and the feeling is mutual. But I, I, the one thing I am shocked at, like we say, like the, the story hasn't changed over 20 years. The thing that really shocks me about that is uh, – it seems to me that my memory, as I get older, gets worse. And so, uh, you know, like that, that, that those things have stayed consistent. Uh, and, and look, all kidding aside, uh, I, I've, I was taught by my parents, and I've tried to live my life this way. Uh, it just it's, it's always easier, no matter how painful it may seem at the time, to tell the truth, and here's why. Uh, I'm... I just said a second ago, my memory is getting worse the older I get. I think everybody does. But when you have as many things you're trying to balance as I do uh, in your head, the idea of having to tell the hundred or five hundred or a thousand lies after the first lie to keep covering for the first lie, I I can't keep my daily schedule straight, uh, let alone tell all those lies and try to remember all those and and the offshoots of those. So uh, for better, for worse, uh, for good or bad, I've always found it in my life much easier to stick to the truth uh, because to me, two plus two is four. I can remember the things that I can remember uh, factually because they happened as opposed to trying to tell all those lies and those side stories to augment or amplify the original lie uh it, it just it, even thinking of doing it exhausts me uh i i have no penchant for doing that uh i don't tell the truth because i'm a wonderful super altruistic human being i, I do it because it, it's it's my memories i can stick to those and and i i remember them pretty fondly you know, whenever I, I look back, like like tonight, talking about Continental, uh, uh, you know, talking about UWF in the past or ECW or, you know, th- those those times, those stories take me back to a phenomenal time in my life. Uh, so why would I want to twist them or aggrandize them or try to eliminate the bad ones or whatever? Like, it's just a lot easier for me to tell the truth so that somebody can't a year, five years, or 20 years from now, I come back and say, well, Shane, on February 11th, uh, 2019, you said this, and now you're saying that. Uh, like I said, it exhausts me to even think of the prospect. But, uh, you know, the thing about Vince, and I, and I think that, I don't think I know that he takes a lot of hits for this, is I think Vince Russo does pretty much the same thing. Uh each one of us has our own gestalt, our own view on the world, and and Vince has a pretty unique one. Uh, you know, having been you know the, the head of creative at, at WWF, uh, you know, having been uh, in WCW, having gone to uh, TNA, uh, we've spoken in the past about, and I've spoken to Vince about places where I disagreed with him on his booking, uh, but. You know, if you've been around that long and people are tuning in, like like I always said in my career, talk good about me, talk bad about me, just talk about me. Uh, Vince Russo, I think, takes a lot of hits because people may not like 
his take on something, but it is his take. And it's, it's, uh, it's his memory and it's his, uh, approach to things, but I've never, ever caught Vince ever telling me as I've seen in almost every other person in wrestling in a, in a boss position, tell you one thing and then do another and then come back and try to explain it back afterwards or whatever. Uh, when in WCW where I worked closely with Vince and later in TNA where I worked very closely with Vince, uh, everything Vince told me, I've never later found out he was lying to me or twisting or contorting something. And in my business, that is a rare commodity. That, that is not something you find very often. It's about as elusive as the unicorn. So, uh, you know, I always appreciated that and valued it. And again, not saying that I have to love everything that Vince Russo does in his booking. He's the booker. Uh, he gets to write what he wants to write. I can disagree with it or I can say I love it. One way or the other, I don't think it really much matters to him as to whatever vision it is he's writing. And that goes back to what I just said. It's something I learned from Dusty Rhodes a long time ago. Uh, you know, everybody was trying to second guess his booking at times. And, and look, booking is anybody can say Monday morning quarterback a, a booker's decision. But Dusty Rhodes, uh, this was going on for some time in the NWA. And finally, one day, Dusty walked in the dressing room and asked somebody for their attention. And he turned around, and he's doing something with his hands, and he turns back around, and he has a piece of paper folded in half. And on the paper, all you could see was what looked like half of a circle. And he said, who can tell me what's on this paper? And everybody, of course, ah, that's a circle, it's a ball, it's a, you know, it's a planet, it's a earth, whatever. And, you know, every kind of round description you could possibly think of. And he let everybody sit there pretty much exhaust their, their, their blurt outs. And then he never said a word. He stepped back and he opened the paper up and it was an Easter egg. And all you could see was the bottom half and the decorations were on the top half. And afterwards he said, always remember, until you see the entire picture, which I have in my head, you don't know what it is you're commenting on. And that always stuck with me, you know, <laughs> like drilled down in my memory because, you know, it, every kid in kindergarten will scream out answers to you, right? Oh, pick me, pick me. Uh, but until you see the overall picture, and, and when you're a booker, as Vince Russo has been, and has been, you know, derided for a lot of his ideas and comments on stuff like that, he's the one that's got the picture. Said he's the one that's being paid to come up with that picture. And I've never known any booker, Bill Watts, uh, Dusty Rhodes, Paul Heyman, uh, Pat Patterson. I've never known any to walk in the room and say, okay, everybody, I just want to clear, clear the air here with all the ideas I have in my head and get everybody's opinion on these ideas. A booker doesn't work that way, nor should they. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I value what Vince Russo said. Uh, uh, I appreciate it deeply. And uh, by the same token, I think, like, like I'm talking now, I think Vince gets slammed. But before anybody wants to come out tomorrow and troll me on Twitter and say, oh, Shane Douglas said Vince Russo never does anything wrong. That's not what I'm saying at all. In fact, I've stated multiple times in this in this answer that uh, that there are several things I disagree with in Vince's uh, bookings over the years. But unless I'm being paid as booker, unless I'm the guy that's got to come up with those ideas, in the final analysis, uh, what's the saying about opinions? 
you know, it's my opinion versus whatever vision Vince Russo has in his head at the time. So, uh, you know, it's, it's really easy in anything to sit back a Monday morning quarterback. And essentially, when you're judging anybody's booking, that's what you're doing. It doesn't matter if it's the greatest bookers that have ever lived or the worst that have ever lived uh, with some of the garbage we've seen on TV. Uh, ultimately, the, the vision is in their head, and, and all we're doing is playing Monday morning quarterback. You know, Tom Brady won the Super Bowl again. Uh, you think he gives a damn what Shane Douglas or Troy Martin or uh, JP or, or Chad think about in our living rooms tonight? He'd give a rat's ass less. Why? Because he's the Super Bowl champion, and he executed the model that he had in his head. Uh, so it, it really is uh, – again, we've talked about this before as well, and I'll, I'll end with this. You know, we talked about the Internet, and the Internet is a, an incredible marvel in so many ways, right? Information at your fingertips. Uh, but there's also some negative sides to it. Uh, if I want to get on now and start espousing my views on cures for cancer, I doubt that there's very many people out there that are suffering from cancer tonight give a rat's ass what Shane Douglas thinks about curing cancer. Uh, but if I was a Nobel-winning chemist and, and talking about it might be a little bit of difference. Uh, the point I'm making is the, the Internet gives an equal voice to everybody out there. And that's great in, in a million different ways. And it's also not so great in a million different ways. Uh, you know, again, if you're going in for brain surgery tomorrow, and I'm, I start telling you tonight, you should this, you should that, and you should the other thing. Well, Shane Douglas is a, in a brain surgeon. So you might want to take my advice with a grain of salt or my directions or my rantings with a grain of salt. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's enough said about that. I think Vince takes a, a, a lot of criticism unduly. Um, and I say that as somebody that, that has opposed a lot of things that Vince has done with his booking. But I can tell you this, with absolute certainty, Vince Russo is one of the straightest arrows I've ever worked with. Uh, a straight-up guy, and like I said a few minutes ago, never one time have I ever known him to lie to me or try to be misleading, and that is almost, uh, singular in the people that I've worked with in my career that I can say that about. That's pretty good. I mean, to be on that short of a list, that's unbelievable. Uh, and, uh, you know, I got to say, too, I mean, where they took that conversation was interesting. And I don't want to get too far into it because I don't want to eat into our time. But they basically kind of worked from what they were talking about into looking at the, you know, the, the, the grand scheme of AEW so far and looking at who they're bringing in and, and guys who were in you know, executive positions and where they're going to fall creatively. And he was using you too as that example of, look, you could put Shane in a creative meeting and Shane's not going to sit there and worry about, you know, what exactly you're going to be doing. Like it's going to be the whole entire show. And he says he doesn't know the, dif the difference between how many guys can sit in a creative meeting and not just worry about what they're going to be doing. So that was what I thought. It was an interesting little, uh, little thing that we can touch into that at another time. Because um, I don't want to eat too much into the rest of the stuff we have planned, so kind of we'll lay the the, yeah. the egg there. But uh, also, just to uh, recall back to Tom Brady, Tom Brady is still wondering 
uh, who this JP guy is that keeps sending sending him his under <laughs> his undergarments. And he said to stop, but he doesn't know who this JP guy is. Yeah, <laughs> JP is that true? He's still the goat, baby. He's he's the goat. <laughs> Just how many uh, pairs have you sent? Oh, I I can't discuss that. But Shane, <laughs> in getting back to the Russo point, I don't know if you yeah. heard this rumor. But supposedly Shane McMahon is very interested in Vince Russo's services to help the creative team. What do you think? This would be the third time if he goes back. The third time the WWF you know wants him to work for. He must not be that bad of a writer, right? Well, look again. If, if we all sit down to write a hundred stories, some might have ninety that are great, and some have ten. Some might have one. Some might have none. Everybody's going to fall between zero and a hundred of how many great stories they had in there. Vince Russo is one of the few people you can count on. You know, if you take your fingers on both hands, how many people in the pantheon of wrestling after it's gone to the to the echelons that it has, uh, you know, the heights that it had. There are uh, but a handful of people that have ever done that on that level uh, for a period of time and been that successful at it. I don't know of any booker that I've ever worked for. Uh, you know, and, and people hear me every week talking, you know, glowingly about uh, Bill Watts and Dusty Rhodes and Paul Heyman. Uh, but, you know, every one of them also had some real stinkeroos along the way uh, that sort of get forgotten about as, as people can look back and remember the, the great stuff that they did. So with Vince, uh, clearly... He's got the, the, the set of chops to be there. Clearly, the WWE is in desperate need of somebody with a creative mind to help dig some out of the stuff that I've been watching lately. Uh, and, and, and he's the type of guy that, like I said about my personal uh, interactions with Vince, he's the type of guy that can walk into that room and in talking to the younger talent there and not get them to put their walls up immediately because he's such a disarming guy and once you get to know him you know he's not a bullshitter a liar or a deceiver that is I would think something that WWE is in desperate need of right now so for all those reasons I just think I think Vince could be a huge asset to them keep in mind Vince I've talked ad nauseum in this about the things that I disagree with Vince in his booking but where Vince was at his very best Russo that is at his very best, was in the WWE system, where he, you know, was in, you know, the, the system that, you know, stuff had to be bounced off events and back and forth. I would say, like, when I'm wrestling, no matter who I'm wrestling, two heads are better than one. Uh, and that's true in almost every aspect of life, unless you're an Albert Einstein, which I don't know, there's many of those in wrestling. Uh, so, uh, or Stephen Hawking, also lacking in wrestling. Um but you put somebody like that that's as creative as Vince Russo has shown to be over the last, what, 20, 20 plus years. Uh, and then you put him into a system where he's being, his ideas are being refined and bounced back and forth. I say, so I call it the, the, the seat of an idea. We throw it up between the three of us. Uh, each of you adds something to it. Some of them may be good, some may suck. But this back and forth between the three of us is probably going to hone that my original idea into a much stronger idea 
uh, especially if all three of us know which direction the company is going. What do we plan on doing with wrestler A, wrestler B, wrestler C? And, you know, events had proven, uh, and what I'm saying is, in my opinion, this is fact, you can go back and research it. Uh, Vince Russo was at his best and most successful in that WWF system, WWE system. So uh, I have no doubt for all the reasons I stated that Vince Russo could be a huge boon, uh, an asset to the WWE, especially right now. So we were talking about before we came on air briefly that uh, there was a number released earlier today that Impact Wrestling on their new channel, which is called the (laughs) the Pursuit Channel, was looking at about 13,000 viewers, which is, like, astounding. Because when Russo was still there, you know, you guys were doing, you know, twos, which is basically what SmackDown is doing on uh, on USA. So I'm just kind of digging more into the article as we're reading here. And so Pursuit claims to be available in 40 million homes. I've personally never heard of Pursuit. I don't know what... I don't know what that is. I'm ass- yeah, I'm assuming that's some, some sort of sports and uh, outdoor-related uh, channel. But it says, since the first episode, Impact has only had between 7,000 to 11,000 viewers based on the week while being broadcasted on Twitch. So that's even putting Twitch into play. And it's, yeah. th- these are just astounding numbers, and we were just we were talking about this. I wish we had the recorder going before we we fe- officially went live, <laughs> but we were talking about you know when Shane was back in TNA in the early days of TNA when they were doing weekly pay per views, and then during the Fox Sports Net days where it, I, JP knows this better than anybody that Impact was our TNA wrestling was on at that time in the afternoon on Fridays, which I mean like how yeah. how the hell are you getting people to watch that? But they still managed to do <laughs> that. Then, as you were mentioning, the move into Spike, which you thought was the perfect network for TNA wrestling, especially what that brand was supposed to be. But I brought up the pay-per-view numbers of, you know, 30,000, 40,000, 50,000, even a Bound for Glory in 2006 hitting up to 60,000 buys, that this is like a plummet of, like, (laughs) crazy-ass proportions that impact is is kind of falling down as far as they have. This uh, This is a crazy ordeal we're seeing. Well, again, we were talking before the, before we came on the air. Uh, when you look at any metropolitan area, look at how many millions of people live in the New York metropolitan area, how many millions in the Chicago area, Los Angeles, Miami, Atlanta. Uh, you can go down most. Then you come to like the tiny cities like Pittsburgh and Milwaukee, right, where you know I think that 150 or 60,000 people live uh, in the actual Pittsburgh city limits. Uh you know, if you can't draw 13,000 people in Pittsburgh, forget the rest of the country. If you can't draw 13,000 people in Pittsburgh to watch a television program, then you're seriously doing something wrong. I, I, I don't have to shoot on my cable system. I'd never heard of it until I got that uh, from you earlier today. Um, you know, you, there's something seriously wrong. And let's face we talked about this before, I believe. If not, I know the three of us have. You know, once you get tainted with that other aspect, that's that other company, it's got the overtone or the undertone of less than. And like WCW had gotten that in its waning days. Uh, it didn't matter how good of a show we put on. It was rare, but we, occasionally we would really hit a, a good show. It didn't matter. The fans had seen us as the company that was losing. And once you get tainted or painted with that, 
Uh, it's really, it's not hard. It's impossible to overcome, barring some massive shakeout. The company's been bought by a conglomerate or, you know, some earth-shattering news of some big signing or something like that. It's almost impossible to undo. Uh, so uh, now that TNA has been through what they've gone through their spikes and they've gone through their, uh, what's the other networks of, uh, uh, what was the one right after Spike? Uh, pop. Uh, pop, yeah, there you go. I, I, it was like a singular word like that. So once you start going through those smaller and smaller and smaller venues, venues and, and outlets, they, rightly or wrongly, I haven't seen their show, so I'm not commenting on the product. I'm just staying in the overarching uh, theme of this. They're now seen as the lesser than company, the losing company, the company on the down. So to overcome that, the only way you can overcome it, like I said a second ago, is to have some really big, ear-shattering news. It's been bought out by Netflix or something of that nature that really gets people talking. Um, you know, the shame of it is, is you know, I, I, from what I've been reading, I, again, I haven't seen any of their product lately, but what I've been reading is that everybody's working their asses off there, and I'm sure they are. But having been in WCW in those waning days and realizing that no matter how hard we went out and worked, it, it was going to get painted with that same brush as it was painted last week and the week before. So that becomes like a cancer in the dressing room. Everybody can sense that they're dying, that the body hasn't hit the floor yet, and yet everybody's hoping that maybe next week changes it and turns it around. I've never experienced that in my life uh, in wrestling, and uh, I would dare say that I doubt that TNA is going to. The shame of it is, is TNA had its opportunity. It had its glorious opportunity. With all the money that was dumped into it by the Carters and Panda Energy and Spike and all the rest of it and all the talent that had gone through there, the one thing that was lacking, and now you can go back and look at this now as, as a linchpin, linchpin moment. What if at that moment, Dixie Carter had decided to take the advice of the people that were giving her advice back then. With all that money that was being dumped in, with all the incredible talent they had there at that time, the AJ Styles, the Samoa Joes, the Bobby Roots, the Stings, the so on and so on and so on, would we be having a much different conversation today than we're having about TNA? Uh, like I said, before we came on the air, and I stick by this, uh, it's dead. The body just hasn't hit the floor yet. So here you go. Ready? This is from January 26, 2005. It was from WrestleZone.com. How many people watch TNA Impact? Ratings inside. Okay, you ready for this? <laughs> mm -hmm. Before we get started, Fox Sports Net does their ratings by market and not nationally. So it makes it a little harder than WWE ratings. The Impact shows on Friday afternoons have been averaging a .25 Cable rating that averages out to around two hundred and fifteen thousand homes <laughs> weekly. The yeah. the replay on Friday, afternoon. on Friday afternoon, the replay shows which take place Fridays at two a.m. and again Saturday at midnight have also been getting a point two five rating. Can you believe that? Another another two hundred thousand per so six hundred thousand per episode uh, versus thirteen thousand. On a national basis, I, 
I, I'm, I'm wondering how they even, unless things have changed in the last year or so, which they probably have as fast as everything is changing. But uh, I, I want to say that ratings, that are, like I want to say about 52,000 is where they break off. Like they, they no longer measure under that. So those, I'm get, if it's still the same, that means 13,000 is an estimate. That's not a solid number. That's just an estimate based off of samplings from from selected markets. Uh, so either way, if they're off by a factor of ten, it's still the shift. Oh yeah, <laughs> and I doubt they're off by a factor of ten. It's uh, yeah, it's unbelievable. But I mean, you know, like like you said before we got rolling. I mean, how many times is this going to be the case? They end up coming out of the uh, <laughs> out of the bellows eventually. You know, and I don't know, maybe that'll happen again. You know, when Dixie Carter got uh, powerbombed through uh, a table, courtesy of uh, Bubba Ray Dudley, you know, we thought that was the end of it. But here they go. Uh, you know, that's two and a half, three years ago already. So uh, I digress. Coming to a public access channel near you. <laughs> <laughs> Followed by Wayne's World. <laughs> you know, that's like... Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, it's the same. I mean, I, you know, I, I, again, I wish everybody that's there uh, the best. And I, I hope they turn that around and, and suddenly make Pursuit Network uh, a spoken about network. But uh, again, in my experience, once you get painted and tainted with that uh, with that philosophy, that nomenclature, that you're the, the company that's on the down, it's really, really difficult, if not impossible, to overcome. And uh, I think, sadly, now that, that that's become that, and you know, it's uh, they're but they're able to still find people, somebody, someplace to invest in it and, and to keep it going. Uh, for the men and women that are working there, I hope that their paychecks continue to come. Uh, I really do, uh, and I don't mean that as a, a backhanded compliment or anything. Uh, I, I coming from where I come from, when so many people were making earnest livings in professional wrestling. To see the numbers across the board. I mean, it's based even like for the for the big companies. It, it's shocking right now where they are. And I and I have we spoken about ad nauseum on this show. I, I fervently believe that all those fans that have tuned out have tuned out for a reason. And now we can all debate what those reasons are. I've got a pretty good inside uh, thought on what they are, uh, and I I don't think that. By the masses, those numbers are going to come back unless you give them what they expect to see as professional wrestling. Well, I'm going to give them a little piece of free advice. And if they go and purchase the Continental Wrestling uh, Library and put that on their television spot, odds are their ratings are going to triple because all you got to do, <laughs> all you got to do is go find an episode and you are locked in. And that's where we're going to pick up the story as your journey through the territories continue. Now, we talked about the UWF. We talked about you leaving Dominic and, and moving on in the world and moving on in a huge way and getting a crash course in the business from Bill Watts and company at the UWF. So now we're going to focus on Continental where you left the UWF, which had been purchased by Turner, and you had done some work in the NWA, but I want to focus on Continental because you were thrust in Continental into a big spot and were a main focus of television for going out for literally your whole entire tenure there. I mean, with like the absolute main story 
that the company was telling was revolving around you and what was going on. But talk about how you got to Continental, how you kind of made your way there, who was your, your point of contact, and what was that like to move from now being under the Bill Watts tutelage all those years and seeing how that was done to now being in a whole new uh, realm and regime? Well, I, I, I still very much considered myself a greenhorn. Uh, you know, I was somewhat more experienced, but, you know, at, this, at that stage, like Steve Austin and I had talked about before, about seven years before for each of us before we really started feeling comfortable. So at this point, I'm a matter of a couple years on the road, and uh, Eddie Gilbert had, uh, this is after the UWF was bought up by the NWA, and Eddie Gilbert had called me, uh, after that, my very brief tenure in the NWA as uh, 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 Magnum TA's protege, uh, Eddie Gilbert had called me and uh, had told me that David Woods uh, in Montgomery, Alabama, had bought the southern portion of uh, Continental Championship Wrestling uh, from Ron Fuller and that he was bringing Eddie in as the booker and that Eddie wanted me in as a you know, baby face for him. And I knew Eddie liked me. I knew Eddie had, uh, didn't quite know it as much as I know it now at that point, but I knew that Eddie had a lot of faith in me, a lot more faith than I had in myself at the time. And I really trusted Eddie. I, I knew that Eddie had an incredible mind for the business, and he was an extremely likable person. You know, unlike a lot of other guys in this business, probably like the guy talking, uh, Eddie had a very uh, easygoing personality, and uh, I felt comfortable with Eddie. So when he called and offered me a, a job there, I, it seemed like it was the perfect choice. You know, I, I'm going to work for another guy that I have a lot of respect for, uh, had a comfortable working relationship with, and when he started telling me the kind of ideas that he had, it sounded like it was going to be a remuneration, uh, uh, a continuation of the UWF. You know, we're going to pick up where we left off there. And he had a pretty talented roster of guys, uh, 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 you know, Pez Wally being among them, who I'd worked with extensively in UWF, uh, uh, Randy Colley. Um, now, there were a lot of guys there that had, a lot of Alpha uh, uh, from the Samoans. Uh, you know, so there was a lot of people there that I knew that I'd be able to work with and learn from, most importantly. And, and uh, chief among them being Eddie Gilbert. Uh, you know, I knew uh, one day, I keep on talking about Bill Watson. I, I learned uh, a huge amount from Bill. But Bill, even though he was quote unquote the booker in UWF, he was, as I've mentioned before, he was tending to the growth of the company, trying to take the company national at that time against WWF. As a result, Eddie, who was the, technically the assistant booker, was really the hands-on day-to-day booker in UWF. Now, going back to work for him at Continental uh, seemed to be you know, just the right idea, the, the right thing to do. Uh, then I also stepped back and looked at, you know, it's going to be a, a smaller markets, uh, but we're owned by a, a, a TV company, uh, the uh, uh, the Fox affiliate, then it had been the CBS affiliate in Montgomery. And, you know, David Wood seemed to be a, you know, seemed to be like he had a 
pretty good name for, you know, in that industry, that sort of thing. So it seemed to me at that stage of my career, especially like this was a, the right move to make. And mo chiefly among those reasons being Eddie Gilbert. And when I went there, I can remember there, uh, you know, I, when I say green, I, I mean, still green, green. You know, I, I remember the first night, in the, not the first night that I was there, but the first night that I, I was in Birmingham uh, at the uh, fairgrounds. They typically ran Battle Auditorium, but it was being renovated. And so we started running every Tuesday night in, in uh, the fairgrounds in Birmingham. And uh, I got there and Eddie pulled me aside and asked if I could get color. And I had never done that in my career. You know, I said, whatever I have to do. And so he starts telling me, all the guys in the dressing room, I'm sure partially ribbing, you know, well, you got to take some aspirin, you know, like seven, eight, nine, ten aspirin. And then you got to, you, you better drink some whiskey on top of that. And I'm not a whiskey drinker at all. I can't stand I got really drunk at one time in high school and to this day, don't like the taste of whiskey. Uh, but everybody's giving me shots of whiskey in the back, and I'm running up and down the hallway in the back and everything. And so when the time comes, ready to get color in the ring, uh, I bleed like a stuck pig, <laughs> you know, like like I'm bleeding out. You know, like all this liquor in me, all this aspirin in me, and uh, but, I mean that's what I'm saying when I'm talking about being green. You know, I was uh, could do the moves, knew how to do it, had no clue when to do them, when not to do them. But again, we had a a very talented roster of veterans that I could work with there that could take me by the nose and tell me when to do it, when not to do it, and sort of steer me in the right direction. And uh, in that respect, I always look back at Continental as being uh, a great learning experience, and, and it, was a, it was a territory that was just a shitload of fun. We had a, a great crew guy. That's where I met. Uh, Steve Armstrong for the first time. It's where I met Tracy Smothers. In fact, we lived together until Steve moved away shortly after that. Uh, 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 Pee Wee Anderson, the referee, was there quite often. Uh, you know, it was just a really good group of guys uh, just having a lot of fun. You know, we, you know, every Tuesday night we were in Birmingham and uh, we would do uh, uh, Gadsden, I think, once a week. Back then, again, it was once a week territory. So you ran the same towns pretty much every week. Dothan, Alabama, Montgomery, uh, you know, so Dothan was the only time that you typically would drive back. It was like a five-hour drive, but most, once every month or two, you'd stay in Dothan. Uh, they used to have a great nightclub there called Cowboys. And, uh, you know, we just had a, it was a great crew of guys. We had a lot of fun and learned along the way and, and then learned towards the end some of the more not-so-fun things about the wrestling business. <laughs> but that was, it was all encapsulated into, into that year and a half, two years that we were down there. It's such a kind of underrated territory. And there's not a whole ton of footage, obviously. Now the Fullers are starting to kind of release some more and more footage, I guess, that you can get through Ron Fuller's website. But it feels like it's almost like a forgotten or lost territory, so to speak, because a lot of people haven't seen uh, a lot of it. And, you know, it kind of adds mystique a little bit of it, but, I mean, it was great. I mean, you had the Fullers, you had the Armstrong, you had so much talent kind of coming through there. Was it just going to be a, a pit stop for you? Did you want to stay there long term? Because you weren't really there for that long of a period of time. No, at the time... It didn't. It wasn't a question to me. It, it ended up being ten years. It ended up being ten months. 
uh, at that stage of my career, I was just going like where the wind took me. You know, if if this runs for a month and, and runs out, then I'll see what the next thing is and what's the next thing after that. Uh, but, you know, once we got there, Eddie started getting the television hot. You know, we were running, I remember Montgomery, mm, that we didn't run weekly. Montgomery, I want to think, was uh, once a month down. I may be wrong on that, but uh, I remember we, it was at the convention center. And the first few times we were there, it was a great big empty room. You know, a couple hundred people spread around this huge convention center. But after several televisions and after the show, you know, Eddie's storylines and stuff started catching some some uh, uh, traction. Suddenly, you know, the, the, the entire floor is full. Now the floor is full and the sides on the, uh, uh, the risers are full. And the crowds were really getting lively. Uh, you know, you could sense that the company was building. And, and you know, I, I'd seen that multiple times in my career, of course, most notably ECW, when we started from scratch. But, you know, to see it and, and to do it, you, there, there, there's a sense of pride. And, uh, you know, and I'm a part of that aspect to it. You know, like, we're, we're, we're succeeding. We're moving in the right direction. And, you know, not that you ever think it's because of me, because it wasn't. It, it, it was a crew uh, that was doing it. But there was a sense of pride that I would see later in ECW at a much bigger, much grander scale. But everything that I experienced in ECW and all that we did in ECW, I experienced in Continental first on a smaller level. But it gave me the, 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 uh, the, the launch pad, if you will the experience for what was to come at ECW. It, it really was a fun little territory and a territory where we, we made decent money, especially on merchandise. Our merchandise sales were really what kept us float because the paychecks from the company weren't that great. But, you know, on a week-to-week basis, you could make a pretty good living on your merchandise sales. Uh, so, you know, what's not to love? You're in a southern city with some beautiful women. Uh some great nightclubs. You're hanging out with guys you really enjoy being with. You're working with guys you really respect. And, you know, you're pretty much in your own bed every night. I mean, what there really wasn't anything to, to really dislike about it. Uh, like I said, other than up until the very end, like when it was about time to leave. Uh, it, 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 I have very fond memories of Continental. Now, we had a fan, Ben Morton, a.k.a. at Ben Morton 88, wrote this in, and it just tied in perfectly to the episode, but we're kind of answering this as we go along. But he put, what are Shane's thoughts of his time at Continental, which we're getting into, and his thoughts of Eddie Gilbert's booking of Continental in general? And we're kind of getting into that as well, and you're kind of saying Eddie's on a roll. Did you always think that Eddie kind of had a good plan, was a good booker, and, and was not just kind of doing the right thing for you, but doing the right thing for the territory and building the territory the right way and getting it back kind of not, not where it was off the map, but getting it back to where it should be. Yeah. No, no question about it. I, you know, Eddie, that's a very tough position for anybody, for the fans that hear the term Booker and they think, well, that'd be great to be Booker because you know, you're the top guy and getting to decide what to do in the shows and all that. When you step back and you see what's really involved with being a Booker, you're dealing with a lot of egos 
you're dealing with a lot of people that say, I don't want to have to lose that person. Why should I have to lay down for that person? Uh, you're dealing with houses that are up and down, bosses that are telling you we need to get the houses up, 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 up. Uh, and then at the same time, you're, you've got a dressing room full of younger guys like Shane Douglas and Tracy Smothers and Steve Armstrong and so many others that really are still learning. You know, and so this is a great big balancing act that Eddie Gilbert's having to pull off and doing it without, you know, a Panda Energy behind him or a Titan Sports or a Time Warner. Uh, he's doing it with a little tiny television company in Montgomery, Alabama. You know, so it's really, you know, your ass is on the line. And I don't recall Eddie, and I, I'm sure you could probably find instances and stories here or there. I don't recall Eddie ever shortchanging anybody. In other words, uh, okay, Pez, why we're going to bring in this username just to beat you every week and get Shane Douglas and Steve Armstrong and Tracy Smothers and all the younger guys over. Uh, Eddie did a pretty good job, about as good a job as you can in that kind of a balancing act to keep everybody happy, uh, to keep, you know, everybody in, when you work for a small company like that, nobody's ever going to be happy with their paycheck because the paychecks coming from the company are never that great. Uh, but when you can keep the dressing room in that kind of a company, happy, smiling, joking in the back, working hard in the ring, you're clearly doing something right. And Eddie Gilbert was, was fantastic. One of the best I'd ever worked for at doing that because again, you know, it's it, ultimately we're doing this to pay our bills. And when you get your paycheck and your paycheck says for a week's work, $125, 150 bucks, 250 on the best weeks, uh, you know, it's easy to complain, but you know, then you're also making your merchandise money and, and sort of balancing that act. And the whole time this is going on, you know, there was like the Northern, Continental and the Southern Continental, uh, the Northern being Ron Fuller's Continental Championship Wrestling, the Southern being David Woods' and Eddie Gilbert's uh, uh, Continental Wrestling Federation. And what we were hearing was how great Knoxville was doing. You know, Knoxville's doing this many people every week. And they're, you know, just the numbers we kept on hearing, the moral of that story is the grass is always greener on the other side. Uh, but for the time that we were there, uh, I, I don't recall anybody being miserable. It seemed like everybody was having a lot of fun. And uh, it, uh, Tracy Smothers used to, if he's listening, he'll love this story. I uh, used to always, uh, he was the booker. He was the booker not for Continental Wrestling. He was the booker for uh, the uh, the after festivities of the shows. You know, because like I said, we were all, except for one day, we were back home in our own apartment, our own beds every night. And uh, he used to carry a wiffle ball bat around, and that was his his pencil. And he had a, a tablet literally filled with names of talent that he would call talent. And he would call these talents over to come over, so you're in the preliminary, you're in the semi-main, you're in the main event, and these ships of talent would come by the apartment in Birmingham, Alabama, and... Uh, and the booking would ensue. Uh, and that's about all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> but it was a shitload of fun. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine with uh, crazy <laughs> Tracy's mothers. I can only imagine. <laughs> now, you know, you mentioned with Ron Fuller 
and then the kind of being a little bit separate, but you know, basically being together. What was it like with the Fullers and the Armstrongs? Because they always obviously played a, a major role in that territory, and they were you know, the the top dogs, if you will. Oh yeah, um, I, I didn't meet Ron until later uh, in my time. It was towards the end of my tenure there that we started running uh, shows. Uh, Continental uh, Championship Wrestling and Continental Wrestling Federation running dual shows. Uh, but it was around that time, and I can't remember if it was at a show or through Steve that I met Bullet, uh, Bob Armstrong. Now, Bob was somebody I had grown up watching and had a huge amount of respect for. Uh, and once I met him, he was one of those few guys, one of those handful of guys that lives up your expectations. Uh, just a great guy. You know, he's a lot of fun to be around. Uh, he was always willing to give you some pointers, you know, and not yet to go ask him. He'd go up to you after your match and say, hey, Shane, if you don't mind, I, I watched your match, and if you don't mind me telling you, and, you know, of course, man, all ears, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, very gracious, never condescending, never, you know, critical. You know, we just always, hey, you know, tonight you did this stuff right, but this and this and this he could have done differently or maybe better uh it was just it was a great learning experience you know when you have a guy like bob armstrong giving you pointers on your matches you know for me that was like a pig and shit you know like uh, this i i at the, the, the moment i'm sitting there listening to bob armstrong tell me what i'm doing right and wrong in my matches at that stage of my career i i couldn't have been any happier uh, you know, everybody from the first day you ever buy boots, uh, you think I'm ready for the big time. And I can certainly tell you now, looking back, that that is hardly the truth. There's no human being that's ever bought a pair of boots that's ready for the big time. Uh, but it's experiences like that with Bob Armstrong, with Eddie Gilbert, and later with Ron Fuller, and, and all the guys that we worked with there that made you ready for the big time in, in years to come after years of experience. But each one of those is a building block that allowed you to get to that big time because had Bob Armstrong not given me those pointers, had Eddie Gilbert and Bill Watts not taught me the things, had Pez Watley and all the guys that I had worked with in UWF and Continental not divulge their secrets and their, and their ethic to me. Uh, I've without hesitation say that I would not have ever become the main event talent that I would become later in my career. You there, obviously not a main eventer, but there you are a tag team champion with Lord Humongous, who at this point was played by Sid Vicious as Jeff Van Camp recently leaves. They, they love the character. They love the gimmick. They wanted to keep it going. What was your experience like teaming up with the psycho one? Sid Vicious, a.k.a. Lord Humongous. Yeah, we got along great, and, and it, it was it was humorous in the sense that, there, you know, it, Sid, like anybody that's young in the business, wanted to, go out and show, wanted to go out and show what he was capable of doing. And he was a very gifted big guy. You know, he could really move around like a cruiserweight today. Uh, for that size, it was impressive. But in a gimmick like Lord Humongous, you know, the, the hockey mask and the, uh, the, the gimmick taken, of course, from the, uh, 
from the Road Warrior movies with uh, Mel Gibson. Uh, you know, it's not the exact kind of character you want to see doing flying head scissors and kip-ups and things of that nature. And, and Sid was really, like, beyond the point of wanting to do them every night. And I kept explaining to him, it doesn't make sense for that character. And one night, excuse me, one night we're in Columbus, Mississippi, and Columbus used to draw really good houses. Yeah, it was a relatively easy trip, a couple hour drive. Uh, you know, and it was always fun because the crowd was always enthusiastic. There was always a good crowd. Uh, you could, you know, work on your way home, pick up a six pack of beer, drive back home, be back home by midnight or so. Uh, it was just a really, really, you know, good night for us. And, uh, you know, she's telling me for the whole, the old day, you know, he wants to do, a kip up and he wants to do a head scissors and he wants to do all these moves. And I'm trying to explain to him. And now back then the dressing rooms were kayfabe, right? So the heels are on the far side of the building. The baby faces are on this side of the building and you couldn't just waltz over and talk to the heels or vice versa. Um, so we get into the match. It's me and him versus Sika and, uh, uh, Alan Martin, uh, if you remember from the NWA, it was an underneath guy, good guy, good good hand, but just, you know, but they, Eddie had put a gimmick on him there where he had inherited money, and so he was using Sika like his his uh, beast to, to do his bidding. So Sid gets in the ring with uh, Sika, and he chokes Sika back into the corner, and I see the mat, the, the hockey mask moving up and down a million miles a minute you know and i know he's calling something like like why you would call something with a veteran like sika is beyond me but he's doing this and so he does some stuff and leaves sika in the corner and he goes over by this time now alan has climbed the top turnbuckle and as he goes walking over there's a he goes to grab alan and alan like he's fighting him off fighting him off and you know he somehow sheds uh, Sid's grip on him and jumps off the top rope and gives this really weak punch. So that, you know, Alan's arms are about 12 inches, right? Jumps off the top rope and he hits Sid with this really weak punch. And Sid does this like slow redwood timber fall. And for a second, I'm thinking, like, did he have a heart attack or something? Like, did he die? <laughs> he's, like, his, he's taking a bump off that little weak punch. Here, while I look over, as he's taking this bump, I look over and Sika is standing in the corner with his arms up on the ropes and looking, and he's got a great big grin on his face. And here, what was called was Sid said, when I go over to Allen, come over, get, the, get on your you know, do a schoolboy behind me, get down on your hands and knees behind me as if a beast like Sika would do that, even in character. <laughs> so when Sid walks over to Alan, he thinks that Sika is behind him on all fours. So when he takes this little weak punch, he thinks he's taking a, a fall over top of Sika, who's on the other side of the ring with his elbows on the top rope with a great big grin on his face. So the whole building went, totally quiet because I think everybody thought like I thought like oh my god the big guy just had a heart attack and he's dead or something because it looked so awkward and we got to the dressing room and you know Sid was a little pissed off and I said well did you learn anything and 
should face turn beat red. You know, I don't want to say anything, but it was like that kind of a territory, you know, where we were all screwing with each other and having fun and, and ribbing each other, but in a, in, a, in a good way, you know, a fun way. And, uh, you know, that I'll never forget that that spot with that. I don't think Alan probably ever forgot that that spot with that with that one punch he puts Lord Humongous down. <laughs> it is such a great pairing if you think about it, especially where you guys end up. Sid Vish is, you know, former world champion. Shane Douglas, former world champion. So it is great. And and I love that you guys did have a kiss theme song as well. I mean you you gotta love that. Oh yeah, absolutely. It was uh you know the the, the, the storyline itself was uh and, and I didn't know. As, as we first started, I'm I'm pretty sure I didn't know. Sid didn't know what the connection was. You know why are Shane Douglas and this monsters early on when they first put us together? I think that night in Birmingham, I talked about earlier when I got color for the first time. Uh, was on being beaten. Sid, my partner, has no has shown up. His flight was late or something, and so I go out uh, and wrestle. Uh, I believe it was Sika and I don't think it was Alan. Sika and maybe Randy, my colleague. Uh, anyway, I'm wrestling them and you know, holding my own for a while. Of course, they then beat me down and you know, the baby face that will never say die. They keep beating me down and beating me down and bloodying me and beating me down. And just when all hope looks lost, Sid comes running through the crowd with his mask on and his, and his suitcase. Like you just came from the airport like that and runs in and, and we didn't know what the connection was until months later uh, when it was revealed to us when we were shooting a promo in the dressing room back at Belt, Boutwell Auditorium uh, uh, the first time we were back in Boutwell Auditorium we're shooting this promo in the back uh, in the dressing room where uh, that night in the match uh, whoever Sid was wrestling through black ink in his eyes and so now we come back after the show we have to shoot the promo that goes along with that and uh he comes back and the whole thing is is as you know we're you know we're trying to get the, we've got to take the mask off right to get the, the ink out of his eyes and as we take the mask off the last visual you see in the uh in the promo is me giving a shocked look and the story later revealed that Sid and I are long lost cousins. Uh, that's why, you know, fans always, uh, you know, jokingly say to me, cousin, you go. Uh, he was my long lost cousin that we hadn't seen each other since we were kids. Um, so that was the storyline connection, but you know, it was clear at that time, even in that kind of a gimmick, it was pretty clear that, that, that Sid Udi was going to become a, you know, a, a pretty big name in wrestling. Uh, he was a physical specimen, right? Nearly seven feet tall, chiseled, jacked, uh, athletic. Um, you know, it was, it was pretty obvious. But he was at the same stage of his career at that point as I was, uh, still learning, uh, needing to learn uh, to be able to become a main event talent down the road. Uh, you know, and that was, in hindsight, one of the things looking back that it's, it's pretty unlikely, even in a, a, you know, a territory that was relatively speaking as big or the size that, that continental was, uh, you know, drawing good houses and everything, but it's still pretty unlikely that these two newer guys that the fans are just learning about 
uh, would then later go on to become bigger names in wrestling. You know, it's like the lottery, right? I mean, how many people are going to hit twice in the same night? Uh, so to have not just us, but there were other guys that were that were coming up that would make you know names for themselves other places in the business, like Tracy Smothers and uh, Steve Armstrong. Although Steve left not long after I got there, uh, but it was an incubator. You know, it was an incubator for the wrestling business to create young talent that would feed into the uh, larger system and much like a farm system, uh, Continental, uh, under Eddie's tutelage, uh, taught a lot of us how to leave that incubator and go on to make money in the wrestling business for ourselves and for the promotions that we work for. Now, is this the first time you ever met Paul Heyman, a.k.a. Paulie Dangerously? Yes, it sure was. Yeah. Yeah, Eddie was, uh, Eddie, Eddie and Paul had a, uh, I'm not exactly sure how they met or where they met, uh, but I know that there was a, you know, Paul was at that time assisting Eddie in the booking. And I have no doubt working that closely with Eddie that Paul learned an awful lot of his booking style that would later be seen in ECW from Eddie Gilbert. Uh, now, to what degree, I don't know. I can't say percentage wise, but I have no doubt knowing Eddie, like I know Eddie or knew Eddie, uh, that. You know, he had that kind of a personality. He was eager to teach anybody that he was working with. And, and Paul, as his assistant, I'm sure he did the same thing in that respect. When you saw him down there, and obviously he's kind of going to be a, a little bit of an Eddie Gilbert disciple, so to speak. Did you ever think, like, man, look at this guy. Oh, he's going to be, uh, yeah, this is gonna, he's going to be, uh, what a great mind. Or, you know, he's going he's gonna to be... Uh, you know, building stars for years to come. Or, you, you know, kind of what was your, your thoughts on him at this point? Uh, extremely talented on the microphone, obviously. Um, but, you know, at that time, the booker doesn't come to or the system booker doesn't come to you and say, okay, this is the idea, and this, this much of it was mine, and this much of it was Eddie's. Uh, so, you know, you're sort of like this idea that you just sort of instinctively give the, the credit to Eddie Gilbert. Uh, but looking back at Continental in hindsight and then seeing what Paul would do later in ECW, you know, I, I, I've never had this discussion with, with Paul. If I ever run into him, somebody, I would love to have that discussion. How much, how much of that came from Eddie and how much of it was yours? How much, in other words, how much Paul Heyman was, were we seeing in Continental and how much Eddie Gilbert did we later see in Paul Heyman? in ECW, because uh, there's no doubt it's an amalgamation. But, you know, he, Eddie and, and Paul, especially in Continental, seemed to be like one person, if that makes sense. Like, you didn't go to Eddie and get told one thing and then go to Paul and get something else. Uh, they seemed very much in sync. Their philosophies and their views were very much in sync. So it was hard to discern where one left off and the other picked up if that makes sense. Definitely. Now, as you're kind of going through Continental, maybe about to leave Continental and head off to WCW and kind of head off um, to different places, uh, even all Japan for a point. I mean, you, you're basically going to branch off and go to someplace bigger. Did you felt like you learned a lot in Continental? Did you grow enough to the point where you're ready to leave? Uh in hindsight, obviously, I'd learned there. Uh, but when you're at that stage of your career, it's, it, 
I know it sounds trite, but uh, when you're at that stage of your career, it honestly, like day one of year five feels not much different than day one of year one. Uh, you know, you, you know that there's a shitload you don't know. And, you know, that you're just trying to, on a night-to-night basis, learn it and learn your craft. And honestly, for me, and Steve Austin said it was the same for him, it was like just one day after about seven years, the light bulb went on. It wasn't that I didn't learn anything after that. I learned an immense amount after that. But I, up to that point, like, you, you know, I, there were, you know, you'd get nauseous before matches, you'd get butterflies. You know, not that you were afraid of going in front of the audience. You were afraid of going in front of the audience and fucking up. So, you know, it wasn't until about seven years in for the two of us that we had discussed before we started getting past that point. Now, you still got some butterflies. I, I still get butterflies today before a match because you want to go out and, and, and have a good performance. But uh, you know all, all the while that you're learning. Uh, when I left Continental, I, you know, I'm sure in the back of my mind I knew I had learned but you're still nervous before matches and you know, now you're worried about, can you live up to the next uh, hurdle that's being put in front of you? So you've cleared through your rookie year, you've cleared uh, through your tenure at UWF, now your tenure at Continental. And now, you know, will you be able to handle the next ball that gets thrown to you? Uh, in this case, in, in WCW, uh, you know, so you always have those, that nervousness, butterflies, uh, nausea, however you want to put it, that you're going to be able to look up that because for me anyway, there was always this big fear that at that next level, I'm going to maybe not succeed. You know, you never thought of being failed, a failure that you would fail, but maybe I won't be able to live up to it the way I did in the last place. And so there's that part of the plays into it until that light bulb finally does come on. Um, this is an incredibly in-depth industry that it takes a long, long time to master. I, I, you know, the greatest worker that's ever lived, they can write the book with every idea they have in their head, every thought, every nuance. And it might be volumes of a book. And you could sit down and read all of those volumes of that book. And you're going to know a little bit more, but until you get in the ring and you do it for the 300, 350 nights per year, including running the roads, because there's a lot learned on the road and in those cars going from point A to B to C. Uh, you know, until you do that, you can read all the books you want. You can read every book from every wrestling champion you've ever loved and watched. Uh, but until you do it, you're not going to really learn that craft. And, you know, for me, I, I look at my career as like this lifelong evolving of where I it was learning, 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 learning. I still learn things, uh, you know, and I, I think I, I try to keep it up in mind to do that because when you stop learning, it becomes a, a chore at that point of job. Uh, when there's something more you can learn, if you look for that and dig for that and try to find that on a night to night basis, uh, it keeps it interesting and it keeps it challenging. But when you get to the point where you feel like, okay, I've, I know everything there is to know about this industry. And boy, at that point, it seems like it would be drudgery. Kind of looking back at some of those unsung heroes of Continental and guys that you cross paths with, you know, for the younger fans, somebody who might just be wanting to 
maybe explore it or they've seen a little bit of it. They haven't really got into it. Is there anybody from that roster, anybody we've talked about or kind of in passing that maybe the newer fan may not know of that they should go out and watch? Because, I mean, I look at this list of guys and, and to see, you know, you got the Nightmare Ken Wayne, you got the Nightmare Danny Davis, you've got so many of these, these underrated guys, these unsung heroes. Is there anybody that you would point the fans in the direction of and say, like, this guy might be an unsung hero, but if you watch some of his matches, you're going to definitely get something from it. Yeah, I think the entire roster is you know, just bringing the nightmares up. You know, somebody else, Tom Fritzmer was one, another one at that point. That Dirty White Boy uh, was another one that came through there. I mean, there's the, 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 the shows, you know, any wrestling show, especially a great wrestling show, it really is about the crew. It's not about, you know, just the one guy or the one lady. You want to you wanna watch the entire show. Sherry Martell had come through while we were down there. Uh, you know, so there was a, a lot of comp came through, but to, to get and to appreciate Continental uh, uh, Wrestling Federation, I think you have to go back and watch some of those episodes, some of those shows, some of those matches. And I'm sure there's some of the, like, there's so many guys, that, uh, fans listening right now that probably are not aware of who the Nightmares were. But if you go back and look at them, uh, Kenny Wayne especially, right? Uh, Kenny Wayne to me was always like uh, uh, Bobby Eaton's uh, littler brother. You know, a body that was atrocious, right? I mean, like didn't look anything at all like a wrestler. Uh, his partner was, was the one that looked more the, the wrestler. Uh, but Kenny could get in the ring and he could go. Like, like Bobby Eaton. He could go, and much like I, I've said about uh, uh, Chris Jer- uh, uh, Chris um, Chris Candido, and it was one of those Chris's. I said they could, you know, get up from a sleep and go right to bring out a five star match. That was Kenny Wayne, uh, one of those guys that all he wanted to do was talk about wrestling. Uh, all he wanted to do was be in the ring. All he wanted to do was be out there selling gimmicks. Uh, he ate, slept, and breathed the wrestling industry. But when you got in the ring with him, it was effortless. He was so smooth, very much in the vein. I don't want to say he was as good as Bobby Eaton, but very much in that vein. You look at him and go, he ain't a wrestler. And then you watch him in the ring and go, wow, <laughs> I got to go. Uh, so for any of the fans out there listening right now that have never seen Continental uh, Wrestling Federation, uh, I urge you to find it wherever you can find it, however you can find it, because... There was a, an awful lot, especially during the Eddie Gilbert tenure, there was an awful lot of really fresh booking that inter, interspersed most of what was great about wrestling previous to that time frame, and then introducing an awful lot of new faces that had never been seen before, like yours truly, uh, to that audience. And see how he did it. I think, you know, large portions of what we're seeing today with AEW getting ready to launch. There's an awful lot that could be learned from how Eddie Gilbert did that, what Eddie Gilbert did while he was there, how he utilized the talent that he was utilizing there. I'm sure if Eddie had an unlimited budget and uh, could have gone out and gotten any talent he wanted, chances that Shane Douglas would have been introduced there were probably pretty slim. Uh, same with the rest of the young guys. But because the budget was a factor, uh, he had
had to go out and find some unknown names, uh, you know, some lesser known names to build that company around. And along the way, we became much better at our craft along the way. So, you know, I think AEW could probably take some lessons from that. But for the fans that are unfamiliar with it or listening right now, I urge you to strongly urge you to go out and, and find it, however it is, wherever it is you have to find it. Because the stuff that was done there, I, I, I haven't seen any of the footage in years, but I would take a, a stab in the dark and say it probably holds up pretty well over time. Uh, and it'd definitely be worth their, the, the fans' uh, while to see what was done there and how it was done. It's excellent. It's on YouTube in uh, kind of dribs and drabs. You can get uh, some different you know, highlight compilations of feuds and some full episodes. They kind of, uh, you see which ones are restricted. I'm not sure if anybody's really under the full ownership of that library. I think it's that, John, is that one of those libraries that's kind of like in the murky waters of we're not sure where it lands right now? Yes, but Ron Fuller, um, hey, I don't know if he has kind of all of it, but he is basically slowly releasing some stuff on his website. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I haven't. I was asking somebody, I'm not even sure if David Wood is still alive. I'm guessing he would because he wasn't that much older than than I was. Uh, he's a fairly young guy. But uh, I know that the tapings, when we did them then, were being recorded by the station that he owned, the Fox affiliate in Montgomery. And uh, it'd be interesting to find out who owns that footage. You know, did, did he, at that time, as a TV person, was he smart enough to, you know, to... Uh, file for the protections for his footage and and if not like did he at some point later sell it to Ron Fuller or whatever you know because somebody has to own it right I mean it's, that, that that goes without saying the question is who owns it and, and it, when, if they own it what, why is it not being seen on, on, on a wider range yeah that's uh, that's why you see it in kind of uh, little sprinkles all over YouTube but you can find stuff and it's cool to see your uh you know, your evolution through there. And just before we get into the wrap-up and the plugs, we're going to uh, forego the Ask Franchise Anything this week. We'll touch back on it next week. But uh, does a fluorescent pink wearing Paul Heyman stand out in that uh, southern uh, territory just as much as uh, he looked on TV or what? <laughs> I think more, more that wearing that suit and carrying that great big cinder block size uh, 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 cell phone that made him stick out in that mullet that he had. Uh, Paul, the New York boy, didn't so much uh, melt into the uh, to the Alabama <laughs> sideways and byways. Uh, uh, he, he looked very much like a New Yorker in, in, in Alabama. <laughs> I can't imagine with some of those suits and some of those shirts and uh, some of those actions. I mean, the mullet is one thing, but I don't know, those fluorescent uh, yuppie, uh, t-shirts and uh, button downs and all that stuff he had. It's uh, it's so classic. It's so great. And it's definitely a great trip back into the time machine and looking at a glory day in professional wrestling that 1988 into 1989. And we'll start touching on more of uh, kind of what you did, you know, as you were leaving Continental. And that's actually, I think that could be a pretty interesting story in itself as well. So we will, uh, we'll touch on that next, but it was another fun one, Shane. And we love, uh, we love really doing this. So, Let's wrap it up here. Like I said, next week we'll touch on the Ask Franchise Anything. Maybe we'll give you an extra one uh, because we missed this week's. 
But if you want to reach out to us, please do so on Twitter. Hit us up at the franchise SD at Two Man Power Trip at Wrestling Pal, and for the show itself at the Three Threat Pod. Use the hashtag AskFranchiseAnything if you want to drop us a line. Or if you want to do it the old school way, you can do it via email. And that is thetriplethreatpod at gmail.com. That gives you the chance to kind of speak your mind a little bit more and give us a, a little extra detail or a video link or something if you want to get a, a question in here for the franchise. And uh, we'll keep moving along. You can hit us up uh, there. You can also go to the website, tmptofwrestling.com for YouTube links as well as show downloads and everything in between. And uh, most importantly, we want to send you over to ProWrestlingTees.com. Please access Shane's t-shirt page. Check out the amazing franchise designs that are on there, the classic franchise t-shirt. You should be wearing it as it starts to get a little warmer. The climate change, Shane, is uh, really starting to uh, spread through uh, this great world that we're in. It's hot, it's cold, it's cold, it's hot. I don't know what it's going to be tomorrow. But get a T-shirt, right? I mean, that's what we should really be doing. We should be getting T-shirts. Absolutely. Why not? I mean, it's it's, uh, the black and gold goes, I can speak from experience, black and gold go together no matter what uh, the uh, climate outside is, no matter how much the climate changes. Uh, So make sure you get your black and gold. Plus, with... uh, WrestleCon coming up very soon. I will be uh, in New York at full force and looking forward to seeing all the black and gold there. Yeah, absolutely. Please stock up. It's uh, it's the right time to do it. It's uh, we can't. You do your spring cleaning. We'll clean out those old T-shirts and make some room for the franchise. That's uh, <laughs> that that's the one piece of advice we'll uh, we'll leave you with here, and uh, we'll get you on the road to episode number eighty-two coming next week and uh thank you for joining us today so shane where are you going to be this weekend doing your thing and uh busting some heads and franchising some asses where are you going to be no no this weekend i'm, I'm relaxing again i'm going to my son's hockey game and i'm uh, going to spend a, got a few things i uh, planned with the boys uh, for the weekend and uh last weekend i'm off before uh heading back out we've got a pretty arduous schedule coming up so going to enjoy this uh one last weekend playing with the boys don't get a little feisty watching some of those hockey uh, checks, and uh, you want to get on there and drop a uh, drop a few guys uh, triple threat style. So that sounds good. Have fun. All the best to all your uh, your folks out there, and uh, please get us on the road to next week, episode number eighty two franchise. The floor is yours. Okay, after a trip one eighty one through continental and taking you down to Alabama and beyond next week. We'll come back and pick it up at the same place and a little bit more of the ass franchise anything. If you don't get here next week, you're liable to get your ass franchised. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.